You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 30th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg puts the squeeze on South Korea and Japan. Australia's plans for giving Indigenous people a permanent voice to Parliament and a Texas zoo will let you name a cockroach after your ex before feeding it to one of their critters. Who's sorry now, Amanda? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Latika Burke and Alessio Patalano, will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from the author Dee Piok about her new book, Chronicling a Journey into Cambodian Rock and Roll. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined today by Latika Burke, journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and by Alessio Patalano, Professor of War and Strategy in East Asia at King's College London. And just to be clear, I don't actually know anybody called Amanda that I can think of. I was just after a, a generic name and it needed three syllables and to end on a hard A, it, it sort of rolled and rhymed. Um, hello to you both. Good evening, Andrew. Uh, I possibly over-explained that joke. Um, <laughs> uh, Alessio, you have been travelling. You have been in Oman, a country I have never visited but have always been curious about. So, so first of all, I think it's one of my favourite places in, in the Gulf region, mostly for, for a number of reasons. First of all, because it has this incredible history. You know that it was a, an informal maritime empire mm. in a way. And it had links that went from what is today Pakistan down to Tanzania, Kenya. Um, and you see that in, in the customs, in, 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 the, in the food culture um, to the present day. Also, the only state that in, in the Gulf region that has an Indian Ocean identity as well as a Gulf uh, state identity. And you can see this in the interaction so 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 and and the landscape is incredible because you go from mountains to desert to warm beautiful beaches and and a rugged coastline it, it has everything in there so it, it just just the, to the eye it's an incredible experience because you see that sort of bridge space into in, you know connecting the gulf to the indian ocean and and so many different cultures it's just an amazing place uh, and latika to repurpose our pre-show conversation as light introductory banter am I right in assuming the demand sounds appealing to you right now because it is desertish and therefore dry and warm and all the things that London in January isn't? Appealing, yes, Andrew, that's right. Okay. I've always actually wanted to go to Oman because it's also a scuba diving destination and it's one of those places that's very easy to get to from London in times when the weather is bleak and sub-zero. Oh, that sounds like the last few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will have more from you both shortly, but we're going to start in Peshawar in northwest Pakistan. At least 47 people have been killed and more than 150 injured in the suicide bombing of a mosque. The mosque is situated close to several buildings belonging to security services. Most of those inside the mosque were believed to be police officers. The attack has been claimed, as have many similar previous, by the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, Nasim Siddiqui is a journalist based in Lahore. He joins us now. Um, Nasim, how much clearer is the picture becoming of what took place in Peshawar. Thank you very much for taking me online. It's a very, very sad incident in Pakistan, especially in Peshawar. You can see that after that Americans and NATO 
NATO has left Afghanistan, we have been uh, really in trouble and too many terrorist attacks are going on in Pakistan, like in Balochistan, like in uh, Peshawar, as uh, recently you have seen that in the police lines there was a big terrorist attack and more than 50 people have been died and more than 150 people, they are injured badly. So the thing is that that Pakistan has taken place in the war of terror with NATO, with American uh, forces. And But when America and NATO forces have left Afghanistan, it's a disastrous for Pakistan. We have been facing terrorist attacks for a long time. The land is Afghanistan. That is used by Taliban or TTP. They are continuously doing terrorist attacks in Pakistan. And so many precious lives have been gone in Pakistan. So I think that at this moment, America and NATO forces, they must help Pakistan because as as the Russian war in 70s and early 80s, when Pakistan was left alone and the Mujahideen, they were turned into Al-Qaeda and Taliban and only is the Pakistan who is suffering for these terrorist attacks. We have lost 80,000 security forces, lives and billions of dollars in the economy. So this is the time to think about Pakistan, America, and NATO forces, they must help Pakistan because this is disastrous. Our economy is going down daily on every basis and the political stability in Pakistan is going down the drain. So we need help from the European countries, from US, from NATO forces that we can stabilize in Pakistan and all of these terrorist attacks must end to a stop at the moment. Yes, please. uh, How much do we know, though, how much continuity there is, how much interaction there is between uh, the Tariqi Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban and the Afghan version? Are they entirely separate organizations? You can know that Taliban initially, when they came into power, when America left Afghanistan, they were saying that they will not allow the land of Afghanistan to use for any terrorism attack. And the then Prime Minister Imran Khan, he tried, he, he said that the whole of the world should uh, help uh, Taliban and at the moment, so we can go for the negotiations with Taliban and TTP so that we can resist the uh, terrorist attacks. But at the moment, you can see that the economy of Pakistan is going very bad as well. And the land of Afghanistan is being used from TTP which is belong to Pakistan and they are supported by raw and from the Indian uh, side as well. So Pakistan is really in a trouble at the moment. So world must see if the Pakistan is unstabilized, the region will be unstabilized and the war on terrorists will come again. So at the moment, if US and the NATO forces and the European countries, they must help the economy of Pakistan so Pakistan can stand on something and they would be able to fight with these terrorists, those who are ruining the uh, ability of the world at the moment. Yes. Nasim Siddiqui in Lahore, thank you very much for joining us. Well, let's bring our panel in now, Latika and Alessio, and let's look at NATO, the Secretary General of which Jens Stoltenberg is this week conducting diplomatic outreach far beyond the borders of the alliance. Stoltenberg is in Seoul, where he has gently suggested that South Korea's policy of not exporting weapons to countries at war might be worth, all things considered, a rethink along the lines of those undertaken by Germany and by Stoltenberg. 
Stoltenberg's own home country of Norway. Stoltenberg is also due in Japan later this week. The visit also appears a reciprocation of the appearance of South Korea's president and Japan's prime minister at last summer's NATO summit in Madrid. Here, first of all, is Jens Stoltenberg speaking to Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk last October. NATO will remain an alliance of North America and Europe, but I also believe that this region faces more and more global challenges, cyber terrorism, but also the security consequences of the rise of China. China is heavily modernizing their nuclear forces, building new nuclear silos, long-range nuclear-capable missiles. They are coercing neighbors. We see how they behave, for instance, in the South China Sea. And they don't share our values. We see how they're cracking down on democratic rights in Hong Kong and how they are threatening Taiwan. So all of this matters for NATO. It matters for our security. We don't regard China as an adversary, but we need to take into account when we make our decisions the security impact of the rise of China, including that they are now working more and more closely with Russia. And then on the partners, we will work more closely with them, with South Korea, with Japan, with Australia and New Zealand. I think that's in the benefit of NATO and for the benefit of our partners. But a membership is not the issue. Closer partnership is what we are going to do. That was Jens Stoltenberg. You can hear that conversation in full in episode 460 of The Foreign Desk, which you can find on our website. Alessio, first of all, if Stoltenberg can talk South Korea around, how big a difference could South Korean arms make in Ukraine? Specifically, I imagine he is thinking of the K2 Black Panther tank, of which Poland, for one, recently ordered, I think, a thousand units. Yes. Well, I think I, I don't think that he actually can talk South Korea around. That's that's the key issue. And, and I think one has to be very careful. I was uh, somewhat surprised at his reference to um, to Germany and, and how Germany changed because, uh, you know, we need to be very careful. The, going, the, the, the closer relationship between NATO and some of its global partners and notably the ones that, that he mentioned in the interview and especially Japan and South Korea um, this time around, it's very important. It's a significant development, no question. But Northeast Asia, in particular, given where we are talking about, does not have a, a security architecture the likes of NATO. Mm. And so comparing Germany to what South Korea or Japan could do, I think it's a bit out of place. You know, Germany is part of an alliance and, and Germany's behaviour does make a fundamental dis- mm. difference, as we've seen. Not the same case for South Korea nor for Japan, which have uh, clauses from a legal point of view about restriction on exports of, 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 of weapons. Um, that are in place for a reason, and removing, rethinking, or creating exceptions to those raises all sorts of other questions. So, in that sense, both in terms of referring to Germany as almost as a moral equivalence, there, I'm, I'm don't, I don't think I would buy into that. Secondly, suggesting that is a bit tone deaf about the security dynamics that it would engender in, 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 in the region mm-hmm. itself. So, so I think. I'm curious to see how he will present that to Japan. Japan, the Prime Minister, has been doing quite a bit, um, given where they are, even in terms of sanctions, I think, together with Singapore, have been among the, the strongest uh, sort of supporters of, of sanctions in the wider sense, even more so than South Korea. Um, but at the same time, and, and, and Japan has expressed opinions about the fact that they want to revise their export control provisions to develop capabilities with other countries. But at the same time, that's a very different thing to go to either Seoul or Tokyo and say, like, hey, do you mind sending a few tanks here and there. I I just don't see that as a sensible or desirable way to have a conversation with global partners, especially if you're trying to look forward. It's both 
creating a false moral equivalency as well as somehow sounding a bit tone deaf in terms of how the changes they make to address a problem in Ukraine might create imbalances in the region to begin with. Uh, nevertheless, Latika, the squeeze is definitely on South Korea. US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin uh, arriving today as well. I doubt that's a coincidence. Um, Stoltenberg's answer there, which we heard, was him responding to a, a somewhat whimsical question I'd put to him saying that given that South Korea and Japan had turned up at the NATO summit, as had Australia and New Zealand, is there actually any real reason why, at some point, give or take having to rewrite the acronym a bit, um, NATO couldn't embrace its Pacific partners fully? Look, I think this is already happening before our eyes, and this is a a good first step from Stoltenberg, notwithstanding what you say there about some of the messaging. I do think we do need to be careful about overplaying the Russia-China parallel. They've got two very different countries with two Mm. very different economic situations going on, and also potentially very different ambitions uh, in the long term. Nevertheless, you have the spectacle of North Korea exporting its arms to Russia for use on the battleground in Ukraine. So I think this was somewhat inevitable that we would start to uh, look further afield as to hang on, which of our friends can now step up a little more and or, or step up and join us in what has become a very collective and cohesive and and has required along the way a lot of coaxing of each other, uh, including what we saw last week with Germany finally being encouraged to to donate its tanks. And along the way, Germany getting the United States to give across some of its Abrams. <laughs> These aren't terrible outcomes because finally the West is doing this stuff together and smaller bits are adding up. So I'm not as pessimistic about this. I think this is a smart step from Stoltenberg. Australia prides itself on its contribution and calls itself the largest non-NATO contributor to the war in Ukraine with its donations. So I do think there is uh, a space to be given to democracies that want to uphold democracy and also their publics that, that see the moral cause of what's going on in Ukraine and also want their governments to be a part of supporting that too. Uh, Alessio, do you see here some sort of attempt to uh, recalibrate that Cold War idea of an essentially bipolar world? I mean, Stoltenberg making a pitch there about values, and this was certainly a recurring theme of the NATO summit in Madrid, that this is an alliance of values as well as of everything else. Yes. So, uh, first of all, I think Stoltenberg has always been very clear that the aggression, uh, Russian aggression to Ukraine, it's a moral stand. It's always been very clear that from his point of view was a violation of a deep-seated core of his moral principles. And he sort of read the, the, the evolution of the war through those lenses. So he's always been very consistent. And the responses from within the region, broadly speaking, across the Indo-Pacific, um, have been quite strong because Japan has been very clear about the fact that there are sort of core principles, respect of sovereignty, that had to be sort of uh, 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 be kept on, firmly on the back of our minds. Same thing for, for, for Australia. Um, to, to a similar extent, Singapore and South Korea, as well as, you know, Taiwanese sort of authorities are coming out with similar messaging. But that is not necessarily a mainstream or like a broadly embraced vision across the region. There are much more muted responses, right? So, But you're absolutely right that there is a call to that sort of a moral element and this disrespect of core fundamental principles of international law, sovereignty first and foremost, that really are a call to arms. 
The extent to which these translates, however, in, in practical action, I think that's where the distinction is. And I think there is also... Um, so Stolberg, I think it's an interesting opening salvo, going with a maximalist proposition, right? Mm. It's like, why don't you join us with sending tanks and whatnot? I think the hope is to have a, to lower the bar when it comes to the actual contribution. Let's not forget that a few months back, even Europe was in a different place in terms of military support. We debated every single aspect. So I don't think that you want either South Korea or Japan to burn any one of those steps, partly because it goes back to a point that, that you both mentioned about public support. I mean, I follow regularly um, South Korean and, 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 and Japanese media. Um, and and broadly speaking, sort of like a regional conversations, Ukraine is nowhere near mm. in the centrality of public perception as it is. There is no public expectation to a point that in Japan, notwithstanding being very appalled with what is happening, to the concerns they have about China, it's not translated into a public call for doing more beyond certain boundaries. So here, their messaging, Stolberg being there, is about pushing the threshold of where that boundary should be a bit higher so that the political of the, of you know the realm of the politically possible expands well let's take a look now at australia the country is just recovering from its annual row over the propriety of celebrating australia day given the dismal consequences of january 26th 1788 for the continent's indigenous peoples and is now looking forward to a protracted further stoush on a broadly similar theme prime minister anthony albanese has promised a referendum before the year is out on the prospect of establishing some sort of indigenous voice to australia's parliament polls suggest a handy majority of Australians are in favour, despite or because of the fact that details of how the voice will work in practice are presently sketchy. Um, Latika, what do we actually know about this for sure? Are the people who are in favour of it broadly in favour of it because they think it's a nice idea, or do we actually know what the mechanism is? This all is aimed at furthering reconciliation in Australia between its Indigenous peoples and its non-Indigenous peoples, and of course this is a long journey. It has a lot of uh, political baggage in Australia. I think the Indigenous voice is in trouble. It's uh, not really clear yet what it actually means once it's put to the people. On one hand, you have a very simplistic proposition. Would you like to acknowledge the Indigenous Australians in the Constitution? I think most people in Australia, if you ask them off the street, would say, yeah, of course, why Mm. not? No problem with that. Where we get into complicated territory and where it could potentially come undone is the idea of enshrining that voice in the constitution via legislation that would be enacted by the parliament. And that part is not yet clear how you would actually determine this voice. And there are some concerns about once you enshrine this voice in the constitution, how much legal authority it would have. The government is at pains to say that this would be an advisory voice made up of Indigenous members of the community and that this would be advice given to the government about issues relating to Indigenous Australians. Now, there are a lot of people who are not happy with that level of detail. The Prime Minister is not a great campaigner himself, and he staked a lot on getting this voice referendum up. Uh, At the moment, polls have consistently showed the public slightly in favour, but the latest one we just conducted just this week, Andrew, has shown support slipping below 50%. There is a well-hang-on voice beginning to come up. Just to follow that up, though, Latika, 
what's your sense of Albanese's strategy here? Because he, he has obviously put himself out in front of this thing. This is clearly going to be a showpiece, as he sees it, of his premiership, much as the apology was to his a predecessor of his as Labour Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. How much risk is he running and what sense does it make for him to be floating this without that detail you were talking about? Well, there's a long history of referenda failing in Australia and the one that comes... Way more often than not. Correct, because it's a very, very high bar to pass a referendum. And the one that comes to mind that plagues and haunts the Labor Party is the 1999 Republic referendum, Mm. which Labor believes was undone because they gave too much detail, uh, i.e. about how you would replace the head of state. So in this scenario, Albanese is looking at what happened in 99 and saying, well, I'm not going to give too much detail this time uh, because that just confuses everyone. And what I want to ask is a fairly simple proposition. Unfortunately, It's actually a little more complicated in execution and critics of this proposal, and there are many, and it could involve the actual formal opposition, which would again put the whole referendum in strife, are seizing on that and saying, well, hang on, you don't just change the constitution willy-nilly, please give us all the detail. Mm. There's a lot to happen. There's a lot to unfold. I think with a really good advertising campaign, this still can be won. But at the moment, even the most uh, ardent supporters within the government of The Voice that I've been talking to are privately concerned that this is slipping away from them. Uh, Alessio, this is a, a, a conundrum which faces a great many countries around the world, those countries which were implanted basically on somebody else's territory, as Australia was, as Canada was, as the United States was, as was most of modern South America. I think there is in modern times a quite uh, good-hearted and quite decent desire to try and make that right, to try and accomplish some sort of reconciliation. And as Latika says, I think Yeah, if if you just said to Australians, should there be some constitutional recognition of the Indigenous peoples in the preamble of our constitution, I think you would, yeah, you would be overwhelmed by positive response for that. But there is a difficulty, isn't there, when you try to take a symbolic gesture and give it some sort of legal power? Yes, I, I completely agree. I, I think it, the, the, I was listening, paying a lot of attention there, because I think the point you were making at the beginning, and, and Andrew, you just re-emphasised that, is the most important. What is a referendum for? A referendum is about asking, taking the polls of the general public about, about a specific idea. It's not about sorting the issue out, right? So, so it seems to me that what we're talking about here, there's two different things. One is the recognition in the preamble of the constitution of the role of the um, Aboriginal uh, communities, which I think that's what the referendum should really aim for. Then how does that translate into further representation and addressing the other problems? Because um, on the way in, I was, I was reading about some of the stats and, 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 and there is a clearly a political conversation to be had about mm-hmm. how do you have a representation that that sort of addresses the problems around the community. But referendums are not designed to sort that out. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it's how politicians are elected and the basis of their manifesto and the conversation that, that you have around that then allows that to be addressed. So I think the problem perhaps is that you need to be careful. Well, look here in the UK, you know, 2016 <laughs> perhaps weren't too simple on that. It's like, do you want Brexit or not? Um, but I think a referendum, it's not about addressing a complex issue. It's about recognising where... 
the heart of the nation is on a particular sort of, on a broader issue. And then it's up to the government to translate that wish into legislation and have a debate about that. Mixing the two together, then it defeats the idea. Because as you say, you know, the, you know if you ask the average Australian about that recognition, of course they're going to say yes. Well, that's the sentiment that you want to capture through a referendum, not how to sort out the issue. Uh, just a final thought on this one for the moment, Latika, because we will doubtless be refer- re- returning rather to this story and indeed referring to it uh, as the, the campaign goes on. Um, how hard is it going to be for Albanese to stop this from turning into some sort of hideous culture war bun fight, which is obviously not going to improve matters for anybody, least of all the Indigenous people of Australia? I'm so glad you asked that question, Andrew, because I think this is the biggest risk and the biggest danger to the voice. The risk is that it becomes part of a culture war. And I actually think it's a bad time to be lobbing the voice up because at no time have you gotten an opposition that's been defeated. It's looking for a purpose and a mission, and it might just leap on the voice and opposing it as one of those. And then you are going to have a very polarised set of conversations around this. Now, I was speaking to a cabinet minister in Australia just the other night and they said to me, if you don't support the voice, you're basically a racist. This is not a great way or a great frame to begin this conversation, even if they are privately held views. And so I do think there's going to be a huge disconnect if we do have a formal opposition in the Liberal Party in Australia coming out against this. Mm. Either way, there's not a great success rate of referendums getting up in Australia And every referendum that has passed has required or has been passed with bipartisan support. So the idea that you have some fraying around this issue and the full-blown risk that it could turn into a culture war at an ugly time, I think this is a really dangerous moment. Well, we will, as I said, be returning to that one as the campaign continues. But for now, we are a little over two weeks from Valentine's Day, which is that thing that people use to mercilessly and tediously flog you stuff in between Christmas and Easter. San Antonio Zoo, named, it says here, the best zoo in Texas, though not sure how stiff the competition is. Probably anything with more than two armadillos is in with a shout, is floating a contrary-wise Valentine's wheeze. For $10, you can name a cockroach after an X, which they will then feed to an animal. Possibly an armadillo. Not sure off the top of my head what armadillos eat. Should have checked. Sorry. Uh, The cockroach they're going to feed to the animal, not the X. That will cost you $50. Um, Alessio, first of all, are you enticed? Will you be emailing San Antonio Zoo, sending them $10 uh, and a name of somebody who at some point wronged you? Andrew, I am Italian. I'm genetically designed to love people. So only positive <laughs> thoughts. I would never feed anyone. Yeah, be, because the, the, the last thing we think of when we think of Italians is merciless, brutal revenge. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm from Naples. You know, like literally, <laughs> literally, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, but when it comes to the end, no, I have, I have all positive thoughts about my exes. So, you know, all good there. I, I, find, it, I find it quite remarkable that it's coming down to this type of, um, you know, particularly this time and age when you want to be I mean, careful it's, it's, it's just strange it's, it's quite weird I mean for a bargain price which actually I think is even more magnificently insulting five bucks <laughs> exactly. it's just a vegetable uh, $25 for an actual rodent but the weird bit well a weird bit of this Latika you can also arrange to have a digital card sent to the ex you have named the vermin after telling them that you've done that which to my mind would rather reinforce in the mind of your ex that wow did I make the right 
right decision there. I think the ex gets to charge rent for living rent-free in your (laughs) head at that point. Um, I'm I'm very terrible, I guess, for this segment because I'm friends with all my exes. I don't have many exes, but I'm friends with, with the few that I have. And I also don't do Valentine's Day. I think it's an it's an awful uh, thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say, being an Australian, Andrew, <laughs> hear me out. This is my macabre side. One of my crimes late at night is to watch endless Facebook videos of mm-hmm. snake catchers in Australia <laughs> where they go in. Usually... Is, is, is that your way of reinforcing yourself that you made the right decision by not, by not living in our benighted homeland Correct. anymore? And usually these videos involve men in short Steve Irwin style running into Queensland homes and extracting pythons and carpet snakes from under fridges and inside toilets and inside bedrooms and all sorts of horrifically familiar places that you don't want snakes to be. If I was going to watch any animal on animal feeding contest, I would probably choose to watch a snake being fed. Well, you can, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure snakes eat rodents. So 25 bucks. Exactly. Um, neither of you are into this at all? No, I'm more, I'm more... Right now, I'm more in that place whereby how do you rank zoos in Texas? That's really the question <laughs> I'm asking, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, you, you may be deviating from the point there somewhat, Alessio. I, I did look it up. They ran this thing last year, and astoundingly, the most popular names people picked last year were Alessio and Latika. That's not actually... That's, 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 and Amanda. Yeah, that's, 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 that's not actually true. It, it, it was, in fact... Fine. Jacob and Sarah, does that tell us there's just a lot of people called Jacob and Sarah or that people called Jacob or Sarah are predisposed to being terrible? Maybe it's because they're both biblical names. Mm. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought didn't of that Didn't think connection. of that, did you? Yeah. No, I did not. No. Oh, yes. There you go. Point. I hadn't thought. Uh, so, so we, just finally then, Alessia, we have heard Latika's views on Valentine's Day. She is against. Uh, where are you on Valentine's Day? Is it, is it a big thing around your way? It isn't, but I'm deeply romantic. So it's the sort of thing like, uh, you know, I'm, I don't believe in it, but I'll do it. <laughs> that's that's that the most romantic, the most romantic sentiment. No, I, no I, because I, it comes from a place of the heart. So yeah, I'll do it anyway. It comes from a place I, of obligation. Yeah, man, I dare you. I dare you. Put that on your card and let us know how that goes. Um, li- I think you'd be better um, off sending the rodent. Yeah, Lillian, producer, I would like Alessio booked in for February fifteenth, please. I, 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 I want to know. I want to know how this goes. Joining us live from the doghouse, Alessio Patalano, um, Alessio and Latika. Thank you both for joining. Us. And finally, on today's show, Cambodia is not widely regarded as a rock and roll hotbed, but our next guest makes a persuasive case that it should be. Dee Piok is the author of Away From Beloved Lover, a Cambodian rock odyssey, which investigates and celebrates a scene which would be remarkable enough, even if the musicians who created it hadn't had to find a way to survive war and genocide. I spoke to Dee earlier. I asked her about her first random encounter with a cover version of Procol Harum's Whiter Shade of Pale, which set her on her path. I first visited Cambodia in 2012. I went to go and see a journalist friend of mine who lived there. And in the south, there's a mountain called Bokor. And on top of this mountain are these kind of colonial remnants of this hilltop town. And there's an abandoned casino. And I was walking into this abandoned casino and there was a Cambodian man next to me with a kind of boombox on his shoulders. And it was blaring out white shade of pale, the, the, but it wasn't, you know, I could recognize the notes, I could recognize the melody, but then this voice came in and it, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Gary Brooker, it wasn't Keith Reed, and it was it was definitely not Procol Harum playing this music. 
I had all these questions um, about who the musician was, how this music kind of came about. Went back to Phnom Penh, started researching the music, and really it kind of came into into being a book out of just personal kind of interest to begin with. Is it possible to say what is distinctive about what Cambodian musicians, especially of the, the rock and roll era, brought to bear on the influences that they started with? I think, you know, there was such a kind of global kind of it was a global melting pot of influence from kind of Brazil we had a lot of you know you had samba you had jazz that influenced a lot in the 50s as well you had this kind of uh, growing elite that was really interested in uh, in influence by French music and then you know in the early 60s it was a lot of rock and roll you had so musicians who, again, from kind of the wealthier kind of backgrounds were going and, and going to universities, going to boarding schools in Europe, were bringing back this music, these 45s in their suitcases. Some were arriving intact, some weren't. And they wish, you know, that's where it sort of began. And then the music shops started popping up in, in, in the capital. And, and then, of course, it progressed into you know, the Amer- into the Vietnam War and America's influence for military radio. So then there was a kind of harder, kind of harder sound coming in in the 70s. So I think I think they were just sort of taking that influence and also their influence of their own music. So you'll hear sort of Cambodian instruments blending with electric guitars and blending with these Western sounds to create something that's totally unique. You end up following this trail all the way back to Cambodia. You end up spending a lot of time in Cambodia and you meet a lot of the people who made this music. But of Mm. course, there's this extraordinary and terrifying interregnum in the development of Cambodia's popular music and indeed Cambodia's everything else. Uh, When the Khmer Rouge seized power in 1975 or so and Mm -hmm. attempt to effectively restart Cambodia at what they literally called Year Zero. Now, this is obviously vastly pre the period in which anybody could store anything digitally. So how did the people who managed to protect Cambodia's modern music heritage, especially its rock and roll heritage, manage to protect it? I mean, I've heard stories of people literally sort of shoving records into nooks and crannies and in houses and then returning after the war and returning after the killing fields and trying to reclaim the houses, trying to reclaim these these records. I met one musician who had gone to extraordinary lengths to hide his records underground in a kind of abandoned outpost. And, you know, and then when he discovered them, he didn't have a record player to play them on. He, did, you know, p- kids were throwing records into rivers like frisbees because there was nothing to play them on. And 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 so, you know, there were, I think there was a lot of incredible stories and incredible lengths that people went to 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 keep this music. And then, of course, you had the refugee movement after as well. So you had people moving to. Uh, you know, America. There's also a lot of cassettes as well. So there was there was records, there was cassettes that were sort of travelling with people to all corners of the world after the refugee camps. I mean, how hard or otherwise was it to get people to talk about that period in particular? Because I, I've, I've travelled myself in places. Bosnia strikes me as a, a similar example in the 1990s. And the first time I went there, I found people much more excited to talk about the rock bands they'd formed during the Siege of Sarajevo than about the Siege of Sarajevo itself. Was there a, there a sense that the musicians you spoke to were much happier talking about music than they were talking about uh, the 
Khmer Rouge. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, not all. I mean, some of them, they felt uh, there was one person I interviewed in particular whose story was so intertwined into kind of his musical story was so intertwined into uh, that time under the Khmer Rouge, it saved his life by playing music for a cadre that then kind of saved him from the killing field. So, you know, some people were more forthcoming than others. And I think, you know, it wasn't something I ever pressed. I'd sort of guide them through their life. And then if they were comfortable with talking about that period, they would go there. And if they didn't, then we would move on and we would talk about other things. What I really wanted to get across in the book that is, is that Cambodia is about so much more than just this period of their history. And, and, and almost sort of retelling that through the music and through what is still the soundtrack of daily life in Cambodia. You know, 60s and 70s music is still their kind of golden era. It's still what you hear when you're on a bus traveling. It's still on the radio everywhere. You know, the, these, these, a six-year-old child knows who Sinsisamut is. So it's, uh, you know, it's still just as relevant today as it was then. And I think it does give people, you know, who went through that period some, something before when they listen to that music as well. Well, that does bring us, I guess, to an obvious place to wrap up, which is to ask you for a recommendation. If anyone's heard this uh, and their curiosity has been piqued, but they don't know necessarily where to start with the Cambodian music heritage that your book chronicles, um, where would you direct them other than, obviously, to that version of Why to Shade a Pale? There's so much music out there. There's so many more compilations that are coming out now. Um, there was a film done in 2015 called Don't Think I've Forgotten. That's a, a great visual and audio place to start, uh, if you can get hold of that film. I think, you know, I mean, for me, one of the first songs after that that I heard, a uh, song, it's actually a Vietnamese cover, cover song by Rosary Satia, who was the most female, uh, most famous female artist from that from that period. And that is a kind of garage rock belter of a song and it's it was all about youth and uh the you know the wonders of youth and that's a that's a great song i think you know there's just for me a kind of uh, there was a lot of western cover songs that were kind of a portal i think uh into into some of the you know into some of the more cambodian music and so you know there, there's beatles songs there's animals songs there's you know the, i yeah all, all the all the songs of that era, you'll hear uh, cover songs by Cambodians. So that's quite a, quite a kind of easy way, I guess, for a non-Cambodian to get into that music. Rosray Sathia finishing that interview with Dee Peok and earlier you heard Sin Sisamath and Baxi Chamkrong. Away from Beloved Lover, Dee's book, it's a musical journey, journey rather, through Cambodia, is out now. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Latika Burke and Alessio Patalano. And playing us out, Barrett Strong, who has died at the age of 82. Had he been less chronically self-effacing, Strong could have been nearly as famous as his songs. He wrote or co-wrote standards in including I Heard It Through the Grapevine, War, Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home, and any number of hits for The Temptations. Strong could certainly sing for himself, however, as he demonstrated on this 1959 track, recorded at Hitsville Studio A in Detroit. Aside from being covered by The Beatles, Led Zeppelin and The Rolling Stones, among many, many others, it became the first of many, many hits for a new label which would become a genre unto itself, Motown. 
Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Paminchuan. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. That's why I want.